Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast. I'm your new host, Adam Scully, and we have a very exciting episode for you all today. The majority of Europe's leagues, especially the top five leagues, have now taken their annual summer break. Uh, fans can now take a nice break from the hectic schedule of football, kick back, watch some less stressful international matches. But with the summer break also comes some wonderful books that are about to be published. Um, and I'm delighted to say that today I have joining me on the podcast is Tom Underhill, who has a a wonderful book coming out called The Working Hands of a Goddess, The Tactics, Culture and Community Behind Jean-Pierre Gasparini's Atalanta. Um, Tom, how are you? How's your summer been so far? Thank you very much for uh, having me on. Yeah, good. It's uh, Now that the season's finished, there is a, like a natural kind of uh, like detoxing for like a few weeks. But then naturally, you kind of start looking ahead to the, to the next one and uh, yeah, starts getting the juices kind of flow into watch actual kind of not necessarily international football again but yeah it's been good doing some work in a in cricket as well which is always handy to have over the summer um nice to do something like like take a little bit of a break from football as well get a different kind of perspective on stuff but uh but yeah no all good all good so I I wanted to ask because of course I mean you know unless I've got this wrong you're not from Bergamo so I want to know your inspiration behind writing such a, a niche book about such a a niche team from Italy so I want to know, yeah, I want to know your inspiration behind it. So, uh, yeah, it was, I, I didn't, it was just kind of by accident. I kind of fell, I kind of fell into them at the, uh, at the point of which the, their story really took off. So in 2017-18 season, which was their first in the Europa League, the, the first in Europe for roughly about 20 years, they played in UA, the UEFA Cup in 1995, I want to say. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And yeah, I just turned on the Europa League one night and to just because I was kind of interested, I was interested to see how Everton were going to do in it because they'd, um, I, I'm not a supporter of Everton, but just I was kind of interested in where that team was going at the time in the post Lukaku kind of era. So was it the Sam just, season, was it? It would have been, yes. Yeah, it was at the very start. So it was the Kerman when he, uh, Kerman, then Unsworth, then Allardyce, I think it was in that order. And um yeah, I was just kind of interested to see where that team was was going. Like, kind of thrown a whole lot of money at it, and um, just kind of turned it on to watch, kind of passively. And they got Everton were were obliterated three 0 As in, it was at Sassuolo Stadium because um, Atalanta Stadium wasn't fit for European purpose at the time because their 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 their, their northern curva was uh, didn't have uh, didn't have seat numbers. So it wasn't eligible for European standards. So they had to go and play at Sassuolo Stadium. And um, they were, it was, it was just, it was breath. It was absolutely breathtaking, like the performance. And I'd never heard of Papu Gomez before, but having watched him, I was, I was absolutely, I, I, I couldn't believe I'd never heard of him. And I, I hadn't really, but other than Martin Darun, I hadn't heard of any of the other Atlanta players at the time, but I was, I was just completely kind of blown away by it. And then, um, in the return like tie in the group stage they then went to uh, went to Goodson Park and won 5-1 um in something that I actually say is, is a bit less impressive the performance the one the 3-0 or the 3-0 3-1 coming remember now I think it's 3-1 performance in in um at Sassuolo Stadium was like that was the 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 peak of their of their powers I would argue um and yeah then just started kind of watching as much as I could following them as much as I could and that was kind of when they like people were starting to take notice because it was Gasparini's second season 
he'd obviously done incredibly in the season before to finish fourth from absolutely nowhere. Um, but, you know, with, with a season like that, it could easily have kind of, there could have been like a resetting to the norm and they could have easily settled back into mid-table. But the fact they then finished seventh and then up to third, third, it was it was like that point of that season was the point that it actually went kind of through the roof. And yeah, I, I kind of, I just happened to catch it at the right time, just as the kind of football analytics world was starting to look at it and see all this stuff that was going on. Well, they and, are a bit uh, of an yeah. analytics darling as well. I mean, they're, they're kind of like Europe's sweethearts a bit, and especially in the 2019-20 season, everyone kind of like <laughs> fell in love with them a bit. That's when I first started noticing them, and they were just incredible. Who is this team, this this silly Italian side that just played yeah. beautiful football with a professor on the sidelines, and it was absolutely incredible. And obviously then you must have fell for the kind of romanticism of it all, and that's where you... Yeah, exactly, exactly that. And it was it was the... It was, the, the thing that kind of got me was that there was there was so much going on like kind of tactic and I'd say this was even really before I started writing about football tactics and really investing in it but I I would I would almost credit watching that team to be one of the ones that really kind of turned me into that like wanting to study that because it was there's just so many aspects it's the directness the kind of the verticality with which they play there's the obviously the the intense man-to-man pressing there's the wing backs like wing backs who are like on steroids like kind of popping up in the penalty box to score like if you, if you look at the kind of the goal scoring numbers from the wing backs across the the Gasparini era it's it's insane like Andrea Conti popped up with loads in that first season he then obviously got sold for like big money and never ever reproduced it again Gerzens came in and Gerzens hit nine and he hit 19 goals in Syria in like two seasons which is just like that's you don't really hear that anywhere else. So it, it just there was it just kind of encapsulated that Gasparini was just and the kind of it, the also the fact that they were just people that we'd never really heard of. And if we had heard of them, they were just we would have like not associated them with being top level players or European players. They would just be mid table, you know, like like kind of like good enough to be in be in a top division, but not necessarily to to go anywhere beyond that. We I mean, look at Martin Darun when he was sold to Middlesbrough, had a, what he described as a miserable season bar scoring against Man City, and then came back and people would have just forgotten about him. And then two years later, he's playing in a Champions League. Such a contrast with him, wasn't it, playing? Like, you know, Aitor Karanka's very defensive oh, yeah. and conservative <laughs> system. And then he's going to, to Atlanta with Gasparini. He's playing this beautiful um, style of play. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to ask you, you know, when I read books, I want to know about the author. So I... I I want to know about your history, you know, what else do you do besides from writing um, the book? So I, um, I've really started writing. So I, I've always been interested in football since so I, I, Euro 2004 was like the first tournament I remember. I would have been five then. And um, I always uh, had been loved, just loved and been interested in football my entire, entire life. Um, and, and even when I was that young, I, I, I would have said I wanted to be a football writer, like I'm, I'm probably more than even playing it. Like I just I wanted to just write about it. I like being able to tell tell my dad and my brother about something I'd seen in the news about football. Like that, that was always where I got my buzz. Um, and naturally, I think when you kind of go through your kind of school years, you kind of you forget that there could possibly be a career in football, because I think you kind of always think that it's like a 
it's the like it's it's far fetched that it's so competitive and you kind of you kind of start to defer away from it a little bit. And I was at university where I did a geography degree, um, which I loved and like really gave me a lot of skills. And kind of just towards the end of it, I started to have a bit of an epiphany where I was sort of thinking like, where am job wise? What am I gonna What am I gonna do? Because there's no geography is one of those subjects where it's like teach you a lot of stuff, but there's no direct kind of career after it it's like you have to use those skills to then go and be a bit creative with what you want to do and I just I, it just you know I've, I've talking with friends it kind of about what I should do it just to, like kind of occurred to me that I had to get into writing about football I was just that was the only thing I want I wanted to do so I just started practicing writing things that I wouldn't share with anyone just keep them saved on my computer almost like a little bit a little bit kind of shy a bit kind of embarrassed to show it and then yeah just started getting them published and founded a co-founded a website called first time finish with an excellent website of... by the way for any listeners <laughs> it's genuinely a fantastic website i love it oh thank you yeah we, we were very proud of it two two like incredible writers like alongside me we founded that during lockdown and um yeah probably helped by being in lockdown and i then went on to a master's degree where you have like a bit of free time so we could like really channel a lot into the website and um after I've, I'm still still running the website, and then I've I've also got a, I've, I work as a freelance social media producer for, um, and I do work for the Premier League. I do for the England Cricket Board, um, uh, Amazon Prime Video, um, which just kind of keeps me keeps me kind of in in and around football and sport all the time, which is what I've always wanted to do. Um, my my passion will always be writing and the creative and the like kind of telling a story and a narrative that will always be my my passion but that work in kind of social media does really give you a different perspective in about how to how to reach people and, and also how to how to publicize and how to kind of advertise yourself so it's um yeah I feel like I've learned a hell of a lot over these past few years aside from writing the book like other stuff's kind of gone around gone on around it to really uh yeah help me I suppose well, you spoke about, you know, the, the game against Everton where Atlanta were just at their scintillating best. But, how you know, that was the, the inspiration behind the book. But when did you when did you go to the publishers with the, with the idea? You know, when did you start writing it before they, they commissioned the book or how did how did the process work? So um, I've been writing pretty much as long as I've been having um, having my work published on different websites. I would very rarely be able to go two or three months without writing an Atalanta themed article. I just, I loved everything about them. Um, I remember doing like a tactical, bit of a tactical breakdown before the, the Paris Saint-Germain quarterfinal. I did one uh, first time finished last year about looking at a potential successor to Gasparini, which is like almost sacrilege to even say like that there would even be life after him. Um, I did a inside story on an interview with Tony Cobmainer's a uh, youth coach from Mars at Alkmaar I just uh, any opportunity I could get to write about them I would and um, rather than me kind of going out and thinking I want to write a book what do I want to write it about it just kind of occurred to me particularly when you're researching these articles there isn't a whole lot in English about about the club aside from the past five years when it's obviously blown up because of how well they've done and um, it just kind of occurred to me that there's a, there was like a, a gap there to kind of pull, not only like kind of pull all the aspects together as the tactical, well, like the kind of the title says, the tactical, there's the culture of 
culture of the club, but also the culture of the city, which is absolutely in- integral to everything that Atalanta stands for. And then how Gasparini tied both of those together to create a, a club and citywide community that is as strong as I think there is in probably European football. And so then I, I, I kind of I uh, uh, got my got my proposal down for the the guys at Pitch Publishing, who are incredible publishers, and I've read their books for years. And they, I, you just know you're in safe hands with kind of a publisher like that, particularly as a first time author. And yeah, that would have been. April last year, just as I actually got it accepted on the day the Super League broke. Like, <laughs> and I, I literally remember being like, this would make a perfect. Yeah. If, if this, if this kind of dies down, like, or even if it doesn't actually just the, the story of that breaking on the day that I've kind of pitched an article, uh, pitched a book about a small regional provincial club climbing the, climbing the ladder to get into Europe. I thought that was like a kind of spooky but mm. fitting kind of timing for it. The Super League is almost the antichrist of clubs like At- Atalanta yeah. that have you <laughs> know built their way yeah. up, and they are like the just such a wonderful team in terms of how they've come through the yeah, as you said, climbed the league into Europe and things like that. And the, the, you have Juventus and Milan and into into that want to break away into their own into their own world. So before the podcast started, you showed me physically the book, and it looked absolutely <laughs> stunning, but. I want, I, I, you know, I want to get your feelings on when you type the final words, when you press send, or when you press send on the, the final draft. How did you feel? Did you feel happy, upset, relieved? Like how how was the? What was your thought process at the time? And how do you feel now as well? It's it's hard it's hard to say. So when when you kind of when I was in the process of writing it, you're so kind of like tunnel vision, head down, almost to the point that when you do actually finish it, you kind of finish it and then you take your step back and you and you think like wow i finished there's no kind of um you only realize you finished it when you take your step back it, it's really strange and then i spent weeks and weeks and weeks editing it and condensing it down getting it down to the words count that i wanted to because i think i went way over the the proposed amount because you know i'm a i'm a bit of a i prefer to kind of get everything down and then chop it down at the end like that's kind of how i'd like to do it um and then I kind of sent it off and there was a huge bit of relief, particularly in the like the couple of weeks followed. Cause um, when you're, when you're working in football five to six days a week in the season, and then when you're not working, you've also got your same laptop out writing about football. It does become like, it, it does really kind of numb you a little bit. How do you miserable. get away from that? How do you, what's your downtime? What do you? Honestly, during the actual writing, I didn't really. I didn't really have much downtime. It was like if I wasn't, you know, I'd, I'd have my, I'd be working a shift, and then on my lunch break, I'd, I'd, I'd kind of close my work tabs and pull up all my hundreds and hundreds of Italian <laughs> translated ones and get get down a couple hundred words on my lunch break, and then I, I, I it was very hard to kind of. The first time I really felt like I'd, I could. Um, turn off it was funny enough in March so just about two weeks before the book was due to be handed in so I'd finished writing it pretty much but I was just in the process of editing it me and my girlfriend went to went to Bergamo for for a weekend because like one it was much easier to do than I thought it would be and I just I felt like I I owed it to myself and to the product to just to go and had like I wasn't going there for research purposes wasn't going there to interview it was just to go and watch a match over there um and I included some of the bits, the kind of the, the experiences in the book, like some of the first-hand experiences. But that was like when the it kind of felt like 
I actually could switch off for a little bit, which is kind of ironic. In mind, I was in the place that I was writing about. Um, and yeah, just, just as, the, as the week's gone by, you get, you get a bit of nerves, a bit of kind of anxiety about like, oh, wow, this is actually, you get the front cover through and you, you, you confirm that it's going to press and it's like, oh, wow, this is, this is actually happening. Like my name is on this yeah. and it's kind of, I've written it months ago and it's, you kind of, you almost forget what you've written a little bit. Um, but yeah, let's just said to you earlier, I, I literally had, I had the, the, the first copy through yesterday, came through the post and now I've got it in my hand all that kind of anxiety is kind of gone it's like i, I i'm so satisfied with it and it must have been hard to like. detach yourself though from it was it because i'd imagine that when you press send on that you were there was a lot of things you were still thinking about that you could have included and things like that was was that going through your mind yeah that definitely was because you like you could easily you could you could make a i mean it's a 320 page book but you could easily i could easily made it 400 450 because if if i wanted to get everything down I think this is something really it's quite hard to kind of do and I, I, I kind of I kind of picked this up from Alex Stewart from the recently departed from TIFO I, I kind of had some zoom meetings with him talking about their tactics and stuff and then we kind of got onto the actual thing of what it means to write about this stuff and he told me that the most it's, it's one of the, the best virtues you can have as a writer is to know when you um don't know something and perhaps can't quite find out and be okay to say that I'm um, rather than trying to be vague and brush over everything to say you've included it to take a bit of a step back and say look I, I, I don't actually know this stuff and not include it that's a really strong virtue to have in any kind of media creation so there are stuff I'd love to have written about. I'd love to have gone really deep into the who the who the hierarchy is behind Gasparini um, the, you know, you have your President Picassi at the top, and you have Gasparini. You have all these sorts of people in between, like the um, General Director Sartori left not so long ago, has gone to Bologna, linked with Alexei Moranchuk today. So it looks like he's trying to pull some Atalanta guys to Bologna with him. Um, I'd have loved to really get into who they were, um, and if I had more time, or, or if I spoke Italian, for example, then maybe that could have been something I could have do in a, you know, I could have done, but. You just got to be kind of happy with what you've you can bring to the table. Like my my background is in kind of cultural writing and tactical writing. So to be able to talk about those things is like where I found my value was best best kind of brought to the table. So um, yeah, I suppose that was the, in a kind of long meandering way. I suppose that is the kind of yeah. That, I hope that answers your question, really. Oh, <laughs> amazing, as I said, I, I love listening to different people's writing process and things like that. So yeah, that was. It was that was great um moving on to kind of the the actual content of the book you know but i think i think when a lot of people think of atalanta they think of Giampiero gasparini it's almost this marriage he he is almost he embodies what atalanta is and it's you can't have one without the other but i think um maybe it's fair to say gasparini is more loved outside of italy than in italy because he's a yeah. very um, polarizing figure. Were you surprised to find it out when you're writing the book, or was it always something you were aware about? Yeah, I, I didn't really. Before I really got into interviewing people in and around Italian football and people who work in it every week and who are, and who follow it, which um, although I'd watch Atalanta as much as I could before writing the book, I I wasn't fully within it. It was only through the process of writing the book that I could actually kind of you know, you, you start joining kind of almost like Twitter circles and you start hearing all these different opinions and stuff. And um, it was a bit of a, a bit of a surprise, I suppose. And 
not just the fact that he's divisive, it's the fact he is despised by any <laughs> other than the club that he manages. He is despised everywhere. Like there are there are certain fan bases. I've spoken to fans of other clubs. AC, AC Milan, I'm guessing, is definitely one. AC, honestly, there's so, AC Milan, Inter hate him. Fiorentina despise him. Um, Napoli hate him. Genoa fans, most of them, despite all that he did at Genoa, there are sections of their ultras that can't stand him and even didn't like him when he was there. Um, there's just, there's so obviously Brescia fans hate him because he's an Atlanta manager. It, it, Sampdoria because of his links to Genoa. It just goes on and on. It was half the league would say, like, if you spoke to their fans, they'd say, I really respect what Atalanta have done and I really like them, but I can't get behind it because I just want Gasparini to lose. That's all I want. I just want to see him lose. Um, and a lot of that comes in. That is character. Um, that is his... He's a very brisk kind of... There's There are bits of... There's certain bits of Mourinho with him. Um, and Mourinho has huge respect for him. When Mourinho was inter-manager... He said that Gasparini's Genoa were the most difficult opponent he played in that 2009-10 season. He said they, they were, and um, a bit like Guardiola famously said that playing against Atalanta was like going to the dentist. He said that you know it's going to hurt and you're afraid of it before it happens. Um, so he's, he's hugely respected for what he does on the pitch, but off the pitch, you know, against against Milan when they won five five nil and he danced on the sidelines, and that. Forever. I mean, they they hated him anyway because of his inter links, but that was like that was like unforgivable, like basically unforgivable to them. Um, yeah, he's is you know he he is a he's a moaner. He's if you like I went when I went to go see them a few months ago, it was in a nil nil draw with Genoa when in a period where Atalanta were really struggling. Like they only won two home games from about November to the end of the season, really struggling at home. Um, and he was. They were in a poor like run in general at the time, and Gasparini had gone about three matches without speaking to the press after that. After he'd done like a blackout because he knew he was going to get fined and banned. And um, he is a furious individual; like he is constantly screaming and shouting at the referee. He's out, he's out. He's a bit like he's got bits of Antonio Conte about him. He's constantly out of his technical. He's throwing his arms. He's shouting at his number two. Uh, I think unless unless he's with your team and giving your team what you want, I think he's he's certainly a, a someone that other fans love to love to hate. Sure. And, <laughs> certainly in yeah. Italy. Yeah. And in the book, you obviously you kind of you go in depth about his tactics and things uh, and things like that. But you know, his coaching background is quite strange because when he was at Juventus, where there was a period of a decade or just under a decade. There was there was managers. There was I think Marcelo Lippi was at the club and mm-hmm. Trapattoni, if I'm not mistaken, maybe towards yeah. the start. Um, yeah, and, and then all of a sudden he goes on to kind of play this some of the most beautiful football in Europe, where you think he'd be more of a. I mean, not to sound stereotypical, but Italian football was very tactical and pragmatic, mm-hmm. I'll say, or conservative back then. So um, yeah, so talk us through true kind of like his tactical setup and and and. His coach and background a bit, I think, is, is really fascinating to really get to know the, the man behind the, the team. So I suppose the, the the Juventus link is quite important because, yeah, it was the, the three coaches, uh, the three main coaches that were at Juventus while he was in the in the um, uh, Primavera setup, which he was for over a decade. He's a decade as a youth coach, they're huge. And he, they won they won regional cups. Um, they were like hugely successful. But the three main coach, senior coach at the time were Lippi, Trapattoni, and Ancelotti. You know, three very they do like 
in themselves three very different Italian coaches. Um, and he then went to Crotone, which at the time uh, was a um, almost like a bit of a feeder club for for Juventus, for their academy products, for their youth coaches to kind of go on and take their step to, to kind of uh, to cut their teeth in senior football. Um, and he kind of had had two spells. He had two spells there and, and got them promoted. And obviously that's then what caught the eye of caught the eye of Genoa. But yeah, it, it, the, the, and that was where he kind of developed this three at the back system, which you kind of think three at the back in Italian football. And certainly from the 90s, you would have assumed it would be kind of based in Catanaccio, like the, looking at the Trapattoni systems and stuff like that. Whereas not not necessarily like the the Antonio Conte three at the back. You would kind of stereotype it as being as being a defensive, like a defense first method, but it is it's far closer to Louis Van Gaal's nine, kind of ninety five Ajax team, where he wanted to have players all across the pitch who were comfortable playing in any other area of the pitch um, shrink shrink it in length but maximize it in width and to be kind of just be autonomous autom- autonomous <laughs> in their in their kind of their movement and their understanding of the the player next to them player ahead of them they were they're the absolute kind of principles of Gasparini's play and that's before you even get into things like pressing and um, you know, kind of funneling play out wide and grouping up to kind of turn the ball over out wide to leave a kind of central attacker free in the middle to follow the the referee round. So that was his his principles have been like firmly based in Dutch football rather than Italian, and it's why I think why they caught the eye so much when he when he took over at Atalanta and started to build this amazing team. Is it it is kind of un-Italian there's there's not much Italian presence within the team in 2019-20 that incredible season where they finished third um, could have won the title about four games before the end of the season they technically could have caught Juventus it was never going to happen because of the run of games but technically could have done um, they scored 98 goals which was the most in Syria for 60 years and they didn't have one Italian goal scorer <laughs> uh, the, the closest they had was Rafael Toloi, who's an Italian international but born in Brazil. Mm-hmm. So there's the, there's a lot of the and and then the the, the pace with which they played. Serie A over the past five six years has certainly started to speed up. It weirdly started- coincided with with Gasparini's tenure at Atlanta, didn't it? And I'm not saying that there's no yeah. you know I'm not saying there's a correlation there. I'm just saying that when he came to Atlanta and they're playing this great football, it all seemed to kind of go hand in hand and then Italy has almost become this very attacking league now I think it's one of the highest mm-hmm. goal scoring leagues in, in, in where you know the goals have massively improved per 90 um, yeah mm-hmm. so it's just strangely coincided and I think as well the you know obviously the, the, there seems to be quite um, a comparison that people make between uh, maybe it's a lazy comparison so apologies if it is but people make the comparison between Gasparini's man marking system and Bielsa's you know I think but but I think it, the man marking is almost tainted because for the mm-hmm. what, the guts of a century, man marking was such a a used tactic in football, and then people moved towards more zonal defensive blocks. And now, when everyone, whenever any team uses a man marking system, it's almost kind of frowned upon as if it's this Bielsa type system yeah. where you're going to concede four or five goals a game. But it's not really the case because I saw your tweet yesterday. Um, sorry, it was a reply to a comment on one of your tweets. Was, you said about the defensive output, and I'd lo- I'd love to kind of talk a bit more about that. You know that their defense, the defensive output's pretty pretty decent for a team that plays such a man marking system. 
Yeah, it's so the, the, the comparisons with Bielsa are, are very interesting. And funny enough, when, when Gasparini was hired to take the Inter job in 2011, he was something like eighth choice. So the ones ahead of him were, I think, Villas Boas was towards the top of the list. And but at the very top of the list was Marcelo Bielsa. He was in he was into Milan's first choice. He was who they wanted. And um which kind of if you think that Gasparini was sacked after five games there, you Bielsa probably wouldn't have even started the season. Like he probably would have he probably would have walked before he'd even managed a match. Um but the issue, yeah, is there are there are certain similarities with Bielsa, but the but that is only in the fact that there are elements of man to man pressing Gasparini is certainly not as total in it he doesn't have the with the with the Bielsa style where it's like the the you you follow your man wherever they go and the kind of the plus one rule and and things like that Gasparini is slight his accents are slightly more there's slightly more nuance to it than that it's in the sense that um they they do press man-to-man but really that only comes to the fore in the midfield and defensive thirds in the in the final third the the front three are really used to kind of to cut off passing lanes rather than kind of win the ball back for a turn like for a, like a tackle or a turnover it's in the middle third where you have Darun and Freuler the two of the most intelligent central midfielders we've seen for a long time in terms of their understanding of space and like putting all ego aside to just do their job and eat up the ground that's where you see them like really snap in and and press man to man. So I think that, that there are some similarities, but I, th- I think as with any as comparing any disciples of any philosophy, if you dig into it close enough, in the same way that like if you look at I, I can't speak, I know enough about it. But if you look at um, Ivan Juric's Torino and his Hellas Verona side, obviously he's the he's the Gasparini disciple. He was coached by him at three different clubs. He was his assistant manager. He is like. Gasparini 2.0 I'm sure you can find nuances within that, that well, I, I, I wrote an article I think back in January for Total Football Analysis on the website and I I sp- focused specifically on the press and I was really really um, amused and I'm really interested in the fact that how similar it was in terms of the man marking and there was uh, I think they played a game against Inter and I remember that the left centre half <laughs> of the tree was near the final third pressing I think it was Brozovic or, or Vidal or whoever, mm-hmm. or whoever it was at the time I can't remember um, yeah, so truly fascinating to say that you're right. It is quite um, quite similar. I, I, I want to ask you as well because you touched on it earlier, and I, I had I had this question written down that I kind of wanted to 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 say to you more towards the end. But who do you see as his replacement? Because as you said, he is Atlanta, and he kind of embodies what they are. And how do you replace him? Who? What does life look like after Gasparini for Atlanta? It's 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 really hard to say. It's um. There, I mean, he. It looks like he's going to stay for another year, which is. I mean, I mean, go back a few years. President Bacassi said that as long as Gasparini wants a job, he will always have a job here because of all that he's all that he's done. But there are just certain little things, certain kind of developments that are happening at Atalanta that's starting to irk Gasparini. You know, they've they've got the new American owners in, um, which. Um, we don't really know what that's going to look like in terms of how they're going to sit within the hierarchy and make influence like transfer decisions. The general director, the sporting director, sorry, has left for Bologna. These, this is an 
ecosystem that's been built around at Gasprey. And Gasprey is a very difficult man to keep happy, but they have kept him very happy. There, there are certain instances like he was, he was furious about the when they sold um, Alessandro Bastoni for 35 million euros, despite the fact he only played about three appearances under Gasparini. Gasparini was furious that they hadn't invested that money properly. And they kind of responded to that by giving him the freedom of the city and, you know, like reminding him what he'd done and kind of a bit of a kind of ego inflation now, I suppose. But there's just, there's, there are certain rumblings that he's just starting to tire a little bit. And when, when, when Napoli fell away in the title chase this year, there was talk that he might replace Spalletti, um, which I think I think I think his time at like a top top team is probably done. Just because I think I think everyone is aware of what it takes to. He's not a managing bring in who's going to bring success straight away. It's like a huge long process, and he's sixty four now. So like, if you're going to bring him in, there's no real point if you're not going to see the fruits of what he produces. Um, as for who would replace him, I mean, Ivan Juric is the natural like. The, the natural kind of heir, I suppose, because he's the, you know, he's he's his disciple. He, he would almost, he would come in and play a very similar system. He's coached them. Um, I mean, not the most popular player, but guys like Matteo Pessina played under him a few years ago. Um, so uh, I, I suggest in that article, I said uh, Lagrino Matarazzo of, of VFB Stuttgart, um, obviously not had a good season at all, just gone, but the one before that was, produced incredible things so that Stuttgart like like and there are some similarities again in like the the, the verticality produ- producing like remarkable kind of numbers out of players that had been very inconsistent before guys like Koulibaly and um and Silas and guys like that and Sasa Kalajic when he came through just there are certain similarities there that I would I would kind of um I could see working but honestly Honestly, it, it would be hard for anyone to ever come in, and because the he's the greatest coach in their history, like no one could ever. It doesn't matter who you bring in. You, I don't believe any manager could come in and take them to the next level. Mm. I think the only natural thing would be to whether they could sustain it, or whether there would be a, like a gentle settling down into a new norm of finishing eighth and ninth, fin- finishing in and around Fiorentina, and kind of in and around Lazio and Roma, as opposed to we got to. F- we finished third to have many times under Gasparini. Who are we going to bring in to take us to a title? It's just, it's not going to, it's just not, it's not possible. It's not possible. I want to ask you, you know, obviously everybody sees Atlanta's how, how incredible the football is. And it's quite, um, I'm sure there's a lot of teams around Europe that would love to have that style of play for their side. But does Gasparini work at any kind of other league or outside, or obviously outside of Italy or even um, kind of a top side? In the top five leagues, does he does he work? Because as I said, it it feels kind of like it's a perfect marriage at the minute. But he's given his the type of man he is, and he's had a lot of fallouts as well. And I'm kind of segueing also into the Papu Gomez um situation here. But do you think he works in any other league outside the top outside of Italy? Sorry, um, not really. And I, I think I don't think that's entirely just on him. I think you you can see that there is a there is a there is a theme of coaches and players within Italy not really wanting to leave out leave the, the country. I mean look at the the rumors about Gianluca Scamatra at the moment and the fact that Arsenal would be able to lump a lot more money at him than Inter would, for example, on wages, but he doesn't want to go because he loves living in Italy and it's his dream to play for an Italian team. I think that applies like and I don't entirely know why that is, whether it's a 
just the love of living it like it's an incredible place to live like the mm. culture's incredible like really strong family communities in italy that would mean that they don't really want to leave there's not a huge english-speaking population particularly people of gasparini's age like people of people of our age for example of in italy will have had english lessons but i'm not sure I, 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 people of Gasparini's age wouldn't have done so yeah. things like that are are important like it's not like German coaches where a lot of them speak English from a young age and are primed to move um, and yeah like just I, I just I just think it's you, he has to go in at a team where there is nothing expected of him because I think as soon as you have expectation and like I have an Inter where he came in after an incredible run with Genoa and wanted to imprint his vision but the the ego and the the the, the gravitas of the, the the players who were already there meant that was never ever going to be possible. And he was never he was never going to be able to sign the kinds of guys that he wanted, like his like his generals. So people like Froyland Darun, he calls his like his autopilot. Mm. He says he in a way he wouldn't have to coach. He could go and sit in the stands and let them dictate the whole match because they're like without ego. They're incredibly intelligent. They're technically very, very good. Like they're they're not just we call them kind of you know water carriers. The kind of the typical Deschamp kind of um, labeling, but technically really good players. Particularly Froiler. Froiler, Froiler is a proficient a short passer and also carrier through the middle third. He's press resistant. He's like a incredibly accurate passer. He's a brilliant presser and tackler. Like if he was three years younger. Like he's 29 now, he would be like hugely hot property, but just the rest of Europe isn't smart enough or isn't awake enough to kind of take that punt on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's those sort of the guys that Gasparini isn't afraid to work with. He doesn't he doesn't want a big name necessarily. Like he he wants people like like Jeremy Bogger, someone who is incredibly exciting, raw. But people have always said, I don't know where his end product is. Gasparini looks at someone like him and goes, I can I can get a 15-goal season out of him. Yesterday, there were links about Stefan Al-Sharawi. That, that, to me, most people would look at that and go, like, yuck, no way. But 29 years old, his career is kind of floating. That, that to me, just screams of, like, Josip Ilicic. Mm-hmm. And that is, like, if he, if he, you know, it's complete conjecture, it might not have any weight in it. But say he signed for Atalanta and Gasparini was there next year, I wouldn't be remotely surprised if he produced a 12-goal season. Like it, it's, it's, it's freakish what Gasparini can do with those players, but I think it is limited to those players rather than perhaps the ones that are where the expectation's already there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, just one of the, the final questions I want to ask you is kind of just talk us through Atalanta's tactical kind of... Um, development under Gasparini since he took over of course and then obviously I want to speak about Papu Gomez and their development after him because he was I don't want to say he was kind of the focal point of the key but he was a huge huge player for Atlanta and his loss obviously was very um, troublesome for the club Gasparini had to kind of tweak things a little bit I think you know change the forward line slightly to make the team different um you know, because yeah. as I said, your kind of key player isn't there anymore. So talk us through the tactical development from when he took over in 2016 onwards until then. So now. the the when he when he arrived, they 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 played five at the back. And I say five at the back because it was um a very defensive low block system under Eddie Reha, now Albania manager. And and Papo Papu featured in that. 
um but he was like a he was more of a second striker or as like a like a left midfielder who would tuck in because they were defending all the time and it was really turgid really like there were there was nothing that could feasibly transition easily from that system to being a Gasparini system um and he he went in and he struggled he, he flicked through formations quite a lot at the start and he the, 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 the wing-backs at his disposal at the time, he had some very young ones. So he also had uh, Leonardo Spinazzola and he had Andrea Conti. They were the, they were the, two, the two young ones. But then the rest, of the, he hadn't quite worked out the rest of the team. So he ended up trying to play those as wingers. And then he ended up, and then he had Bukhari Drame, who he'd brought with him from, uh, I think he had been at Sevilla, but he played, worked with him at Genoa. And then he also had Chris, um, Christian Raimondi, who was club captain, stalwart, and they're playing them as wing backs, and neither of them have the legs. They were they were just they were full they were full backs playing as wing backs, and you know that when when you you when you see that and it goes wrong, it just looks. It's like if you see now that Ben Davis has become a fortified central defender. If you played him at wing back now, it would look horrible. Yeah. Like it probably just wouldn't look right. Absolutely the same with these two, and it didn't look right. And eventually, when after having reassurances from the board that he was going to be backed and he wasn't going to be kicked out. You know that they believed in him and that he had full access to, you know, use the use the kids, use these young players that we have in our academy. Um, he defaulted to having Spinazzola as his left wing back and Andrea Conti as his right wing back. And as you get with teams that have no expectation on them, they were able to play almost solely on the counter. So their their possession stats were very low. Their passing accuracy was very low. Um, but they would be they would sit. Fairly deep. I'm quite call it a low block, more of a mid block. But they would, but they would wait and draw, draw onto them, and then they'd explode forward in three passes. And the idea was that they would get the ball wide as quick as they could to Spinazzola on the left, combined with Papu, because as of the sort of player that Papu was, that he would draw players with him, and then arc crosses to the back post where Andrea Conti would ghost in completely unmarked and score at the back post. That was like the archetype of Atalanta goal in that first season because no one was suspecting it. No one had seen that Andrea Conti could ever do that because he was, one, he was very young and his only experience playing for Atalanta had been under Reha the season before. So there was no, no expectation that he could be a Marcus Alonso style or Gerson mm. style left, you know, um, right wing back. And that produced, um, it produced a lot of goals and obviously they finished fourth. And gradually, as, as you get these teams, the rest of the league starts to wise up to them. So you start seeing their their possession stats go up. Um, and that requires a different way of of how, of how you have to play. And Conti was obviously sold. Spinazzola stayed a season longer, but was ravaged by injury. So you didn't really even get a second season out of him. So they had to find new ways to use the wingbacks. And the product of that was they had the Conti replacement was Gerzens on the other side, really. He was like the bulldozing, get into the box and score. Doesn't offer a whole lot in possession. It's, it's all off the ball and kind of um, offering mechanisms to get out of pressure and to move the ball out of the field. That was as Gerzens' kind of his selling point. And then on the right, they brought in Hans Hatterbor, who a lot of his stuff was on the ball. Not a flashy player, but tall, strong, comfortable passer would move inside to combine with Freuler and Darun very comfortably and almost be like another central midfielder really so those were really severe tweaks and of course what that then meant is that 
you the this the way that they would attack would change because there wouldn't be that direct one two three goal kind of you would start to get more intricacies and of course with that they brought in Josip Ilicic who now had Ilicic and Gomez flanking um Andrea Patania at first who was a typical focal point like strong didn't score a whole lot but very very strong would hold the ball up and would bring others into play and he was obviously then upgraded with Duvan Zapata and that trident was the 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 best version the best iteration of this Gasparini team and it was more intricate because you had far more ways of getting through teams it wasn't just through crossing the ball you had Papu as an ex- a brilliant dribbler of the ball who would carry the ball through packed defenses Ilicic had incredible shooter from distance with wing backs even if like Hatterball's not particularly he's not a particularly destructive wing back he was never a great crosser particularly or a great shooter but if you're having wing backs wise you're always you're always going to have an overload in those areas so you're always going to that's always going to be a route for you so that and 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 the product of that was you had huge like you shared the goals out between Gomez, Ilicic, Zapata, Luis Muriel when he came off the bench um, Gerson's popping up with nearly double-digit goals, and rather than relying on on Gomez, you did have this like huge sharing of distribution of goals from really smart, mm-hmm. really smart attacking players. Um, and then, kind of leading on to your your other question about Gomez, was that he he was absolutely adored by the club and the city. Like he was captain after after a season. He embodied everything that was um, not just what it was to be like Bergamaschi. It was also the 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 Argentinian what what Argentinian football fans look in there. I believe they call it the El Pibe, like the the kid with the like the kind of scruffy looking kid who um, like kind of came up on the streets, short, aggressive, feisty, but incredibly gifted with the ball. That is Papu Gomez, and I I, I say that. I think Papu Gomez is the closest, like the most similar player carrying the ball as you can get to Lionel Messi. Like the way they move the ball and the like, completely untouchable. One. It's probably the biggest work. compliment I think any probably any footballer can get, especially an Argentinian footballer can yeah. get. <laughs> I think, and he was a genius player who was mm-hmm. unlocked by Gasparini and um, played in a few different roles. Like he did play in a front two in the first season with Patania, like a bit of little and large combination moved out to the left, played central. I think his best work was done was done centrally behind a front two. Like when it when Ilicic's legs really went and you almost saw Ilicic play as a front two with Zapata, Gomez would play in that 1920s would play in the hole behind. And that is where he just he would pop up on the right as well as the left. And he just complete full reign to do whatever he and wanted. It, was- you know, going back to the idea of of kind of a, a marriage, I think when when Gomez and Atlanta broke up and they went and they they saw different people. It didn't really Atlanta obviously managed to move on eventually. I think things were a bit ropey at the start, but eventually they grew into the 2021 season. I remember they had a, a solid um end to it. But Gomez never quite hit the heights, I think it's fair to say, when he left Atlanta. It was, you know, mm-hmm. quite it was quite sad to see actually, because he was such a, a wonderful footballer in Bergamo. Definitely like he he was he was the pretty much that I've I think you could easily argue he was the best player in Italy for at least two of the th- two of the four and a half seasons that he had under Gasparini. Um, and yeah, they, they did. They, they muddled through the end of the season. They did finish really strongly. Um, there was some luck involved with that in the sense that 
Ruslan Malinovsky stepped up and in a bit of a way that Gomez had years before became pretty much between between January 2021 and the end of the season I think Malinovsky was probably the in-form attacker across all of Europe like he was absolutely flying like contributing a goal every game um way way above his xg and his expected assists so like it was it was you know he was he was running incredibly hard um but I think that papered over the cracks and, and Ilicic obviously continuing to decline as he gets older and, you know, his body, is, he's never been the strongest physically anyway, but it really shows when he's at 34. Um, and yeah, that, that looked like it kind of, the Malinowski was the guy to step up and the past season has shown that Malinowski is, you know, that wasn't necessarily sustainable, that run. And he is a, a hot or cold player will go for incredible runs of form, but then also, really frustrate when he's not on it and understandably bear in mind what's how what you know what's kind of been going on with his life and stuff in the past six months that is understandable um so i think and and towards the end of the season it really did show that atlanta have struggled to find a creative passer and that's something they absolutely need and it, it's hard to recruit when you're playing with you're not always playing with a 10. They very rarely play with a 10 at all anymore. They'll play with like a, a completely fluid front three, particularly when Zapata's not playing. Um, so yeah, Mal- Malinowski looked like he was going to be the guy. And he, he, he's got a lot of like kind of um, credit in the bank. The fans really love him. And he's he's done some incredible things. Like it's that goal against Juventus earlier this season, that free kick that Freuler rolled to him and he... With the most vicious left foot shot, I think you'll you'll see for a long time. He's got that in his locker, but to to build a team around him in the same way that they did Gomez probably isn't advisable. And I think they'll probably look to get someone perhaps more in the Gomez that creator that kind of all all encompassing. Who do you suggest? Who do you suggest then? I was I was talking about this on on Twitter the other day. I'm not. I haven't got an exact name, but. Someone in the mold of Stefano Sensi, I feel like that is the kind of guy that they need. Like, particularly when Sensi was at, um, when he came, uh, he came back from loan to Inter when yeah. when Conte was there. Was it? It was Sassuolo, wasn't it? Was that? Yeah, it was Sassuolo. Yeah, yeah. That Sassuolo, and he was he was contributing nearly five shot creating actions a match. He's he's like he's small, he's dexterous, he he's he's a lovely footballer, Stefano Sensi, and it's such a shame that his injuries have really kind of ruined his, kind of ruined it what like what his potential was, mm-hmm. um and 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 for that reason I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest Atalanta touching Sensi. Um, looks like he's probably going to go to Monza, which is quite interesting, um, but um that kind of guy, and that that might be someone you know Atalanta have a lot of interest in like the in the Belgian league and like in the kind of uh, outside the top five European leagues, they're very good at scouting Swiss league places like that. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but it's someone in the Stefano Sensi mold as specific as that is, because they've got guys who can play as a 10, but they're, they're, they're the guys you want on the end of a chance, right? They're goal scoring 10s rather than creating so Mario Pasalic, Matteo Pessina, who's had a horrible year and yeah. Atlanta fans really want to see the back of him. Um, they've they've played Cop Mainers as a ten, which as brilliant as he has been there, it's not his best position. Like he, he will he will succeed Darun in the in the pivot long term. They just need someone who's a bit more crafty and and Malowski as well. Malowski is a phenomenal uh, like shooter from range and he makes things happen. 
a very good long passer, but he's not a he's not a kind of locking key kind of creator. So yeah, I, I would say that is definitely to find the Papu successor is the absolute essential is, is essential if they're going to start hitting those goal tallies in the same way that they did like two years ago. Well, look. I've absolutely loved this chat. I mean, it's, it, I was really excited to have you on and I'm delighted you came on. You were so, I mean, it was just wonderful to hear you talk about Atlanta. They have such passion when you speak about them as well. I can see how, how you immerse yourself almost in this project. Your book, The Walking Hands of a Goddess, tell us about that. Where can people buy it? So it's available on Pitch Publishing's own website. You can also get it, uh, pre-order on Amazon. Um, you can... When it comes out on July 18th, you'll be able to get it in WH Smith's Waterstones, those sort of places. So uh yeah, just under just under six weeks till it's out. So uh yeah, really hope, really hope listeners enjoy it. Yeah, no, as I said, you know, I um I don't like spending money, but my birthday's coming up, so I'm gonna ask someone for it. So, uh, yeah, so it's been great. I can't wait <laughs> to read it. And, yeah, I can't wait to read it. So thank you so much for coming on, uh, Tom. And um No, thank you for thank you for having me. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, this has been the Total Football Analysis Podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.